You're listening to Cleveland First Baptist Church's Wednesday night adult Bible study audio. For more information on Cleveland First Baptist Church, please visit clevelandfirstbaptistchurch.com. Father God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the love that you have given to us that we do not, will not, cannot deserve. We pray, Lord, that we would honor you with our words tonight, with our thoughts, with our actions. We pray, Father, that you would reveal your word to us, that um, you would speak through me, that it would not be my words tonight, Father, but that it would be yours, that your scripture would speak for itself. I pray, Father, that we would um, that we would just glorify you and honor you with all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Thank you, Ms. Colinda. All right, so... Um, tonight we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be in the last section of Romans 8, so we're going to be in verses 31 through 39, so this will be on the tail end of what um, Greg finished up with on Sunday morning, um, at least I don't remember Greg going into this part, so if he did and we get a little overlap, that's okay, um, but I'm pretty sure he didn't, so we're going to finish this. Um, don't forget, this coming Sunday we'll be in session 9 of Romans for our Sunday school, and we will actually be in chapter 10, even though it's session 9, um, if I remember correctly from what I looked at in the book the other day. But tonight we're going to look at a short section. We're going to look at Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. So I'm going to read that, and then we're going to kind of break it down verse by verse, um, just the way we do on Sundays, the way Brother Rick does normally on Wednesday nights. So, what then shall we say to these things? And I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, we're going to kind of break this down verse by verse, just like we always do with our scripture. Um, so, on Sunday, Greg led through Romans 8, verses um, 12 through about 30. He did a really great job breaking down that passage, talking about um, our spiritual adoption into God's family, um, what that means for us in the future, um, and what that means for creation in the future, um, waiting for the present time to finally pass, waiting for the, the troubles and the tribulations and the strife that the earth is in and that we are in, that all creation is in to finally pass. Um, so we're going to continue Paul's thoughts of what does that mean for us here. So in verse 31 he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So the first question we want to ask is, what things? When Paul says, what things... What shall we say to these things? We want to ask, well, what things? Well, it's all of the main points of his argument throughout the chapter so far. Um, 
that we, if we are in Christ, are heirs with Christ, if, as Greg pointed out on Sunday, provided in verse 17 that we suffer with him and that we may also be glorified with him. So one of those things Paul is talking about is that we are heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him so we may be glorified with him. Um, another thing he points out is that we will be glorified with Christ. He talks about understanding that nothing compares, he says, to the future that is to come with Christ in eternity. That nothing on earth, nothing we go through now is to compare to um, the glory that is to be revealed to us is what he says in verse 18. He tells us that God works in verse 28, all things to the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose, called according to his purpose. A lot of times people leave that out, um, just as Greg talked about, that a lot of times people leave out the second part of verse 17, and they say that we will be heirs with Christ. They leave out the part about suffering with him. A lot of times in verse 28, people like to read that first half and say, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. They love that part. But then the next part says, for those who are called according to his purpose. So it's not that God works everything to our good the way we think it should be or our version of good, but good according to those who are called according to his purpose. So those good things are his good things and his good timing, not necessarily our good things and our timing. Um, and one of the other points here is that God knows us before, knew us before, and that he ordains us to be conformed to the image of Christ. In verse 29, he says, For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, talking about Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And that goes back to talking about us being adopted into the family of God and being called the sons of God. It says Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and that we are to be conformed to his image. So before we get into anything else tonight, I want to spend a little bit of time on that. Um, this is kind of fun for me to write this lesson tonight and then also write my youth lesson for tonight because in our youth study of Romans, we've been doing that for a while, we are in chapter 12. And chapter 12 starts out with be no longer conformed to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we see kind of a pattern here between those two things. So for me, going back and forth here was quite a bit of fun. Um, trying to keep it all straight was a little difficult. But he says that we who are in Christ, we that God foreknew, right, Christians, that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So we are to look like Jesus, who is the firstborn among many brothers, it says. We're to look like Jesus. As Brother Rick talked about on Sunday in the message, we are to be little Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what that word um, really means. We are to look like Christ. We are to act like Christ. And so often, I think people kind of get this backwards in modern Christianity, especially in Western Christianity, we get this idea in our heads that we've got this image of what we want Jesus to look like or who we want Jesus to look like. And you'll hear people say, um, well, my Jesus looks like this. Or, well, my Jesus acts like this. Or, my Jesus believes in this. Or, my Jesus loves everybody just like this. Because we've 
got this image in our head of what we think God is supposed to be and who we think God is supposed to be, who we want God to be. We want him to fit in our box of this is the God I want to serve. But we're told here that if we are in Christ, then we are to be conformed to his image, not the other way around. We don't conform Jesus into our image. We don't conform Jesus to look like we want him to look and to sound like we want him to sound and to be like we want him to be. We have to be conformed into his image because he is the firstborn among many sons. We are adopted into that family. Well, he was already the head of that family, right? He is the head of the church. So we are supposed to look like him. We're not supposed to make him look like us. And that's a big thing for the church. We have to understand and make sure that we know that we're not trying to make Jesus be our version of what we want him to be, but that we are trying to be like him in every way. We are supposed to be transformed, according to Romans 12, by the renewing of our mind through reading scripture, through prayer, through that word, that sanctification, becoming more holy and more Christ-like, not conformed, right? So in light of these things, um, he says, in light of all these things, right, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And in the Greek, the way that's translated, it really says not if God is for us, it says because God is for us. So because God is for us, in light of all these things, in light of us being adopted into the family and us being conformed to his image, in light of those things, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? So then verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Give us all things. First of all, he says God's love for us, his grace that is given to us is so great. How do we know how great it's so great that he gave his only son for us while we were still sinners? Romans 5.8. The very son that according to Hebrews, he sets above all things and gives all things into his hand, that firstborn among many sons. So he says if God did that for us, how much more will he by grace, so graciously he says by grace, how much more will he give us these eternal things? An airship with the Son, a future that is eternal, a sure salvation. God didn't spare his Son for us, so he won't spare any other good thing for us. The good things of the Father, right? The good things of the Father aren't material and temporary things, but they are eternal and they come from him, especially grace and forgiveness. So he did not spare his own Son but bestowed grace and forgiveness upon those of us who were not his, who were, who were enemies with God, who were at conflict with God. So verse 33, So who then shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So if God does this thing to those of us who were his enemies to make his enemies, his children, Paul says, who can bring a charge against us? Who can condemn us? And then he answers, he says, God is the one who justifies. God is the one who declares us to be just, to be righteous. He declares us to have right standing before him. 
not by anything we've done, not by anything we've earned, but because he is the just one, he is the righteous one, so we are declared righteous because of him. So who can bring a charge against us? Well, the judge of the world has spoken on the matter, so no one else can bring a charge. He's already made that decision. So verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding on our behalf. So who can condemn? The judge has already made the decision. He's declared us right, declared us just if we are in Christ. So who can condemn? Well, there are four reasons no one can condemn, right? And they all have to do with Christ and who he is and what he's done and where he is. Number one, Christ's death. His death... Once and for all, if we are in him, if we are being conformed to his image, keeps us from condemnation. Because in Romans 8, 1 through 2, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So if we are in Christ through his death, we are no longer under condemnation. Not only are we no longer under condemnation because of Christ's death, but because of Christ's resurrection, we too shall live, is what Romans tells us. Because he was raised, so therefore we have hope of a resurrection ourselves. Greg talked a little bit about that on Sunday. Because Christ is raised from the dead, he is not in the grave. We have hope to be raised from our sin, from our death as well. So because of Christ's death and his resurrection, we are no longer under condemnation. Thirdly, Christ's position at the right hand of the Father. He says that here. He says, if I can find my verse, verse 34. He says, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Um, Hebrews talks about this a lot in the first couple chapters of Hebrews and also in chapter 7. And, sorry guys, my youth are asking me questions. So, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's position exalted at the right hand of the Father. And because he's at the right hand of the Father, he is making intercession for us. Making intercession for us. So, intercession. Intercession means to talk to someone purposefully, right? It means to bring a petition before someone. So, Jesus is bringing a petition before God, before the Father, at the right hand of the Father, on our behalf making the case to the judge on our behalf. And God looks at the evidence Jesus brings, and that evidence is his blood that is over us, and says, because of my son's blood, because of his sacrifice, I declare them to be just. He's making intercession on our behalf. So what's really interesting is the root words that make up the word intercession in the Greek is used in Greek literature, in the ancient Greek, as an antonym for a word that is harmartia. I think Brother Rick actually talked about that, maybe not last week, but the week before. That word harmartia is the word that we get sin from. It means to miss the mark. But the Greek word, the root word for intercession, actually means to hit the mark, to hit the bullseye. It's the antonym. So when Jesus is presenting the case for our righteousness, by presenting his blood, he's saying, even though they missed the mark, 
they sinned, they missed it, I am giving them my blood. I hit the mark, right? I am righteous and I hit the mark. So even though they missed it, I hit it. So he makes intercession for us because he can satisfy that righteousness where we can't because we sin. So Christ is interceding for us, presenting on our behalf the opposite of our sin, which is his righteousness, his blood. That gives me chills. I hope it gives you all chills. So verse 35, so who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So then let's look at all these things that are going on here in these next couple of verses. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so we want to look at this. Paul tells us that nothing can separate us Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when he says nothing, what does he mean? Does he mean most things? Does he mean physical things? Does he mean spiritual things? He means all of it. He says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So spiritual things and physical things. Nothing spiritual and nothing physical. Nothing can separate us. We want to look at that. So when we think spiritual, we see, he says, persecution. He says angels or rulers. He says tribulations. He says distress, the sword, which may be a result of persecution. So he's saying nothing spiritual, no one is going to be able to persecute you to the point of separating you from Christ. In fact, we're told in James to rejoice when we face trials of many kinds because those trials produce perseverance or endurance, right? We're supposed to be joyful when we go through those things. Romans talks about that as well. So those spiritual things cannot separate us. It says angels, rulers, cannot separate us. Demons cannot take us away from the love of Christ. No amount of spiritual attack can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then he also says, all these physical things cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ. He says, famine cannot separate us. Lack of food, right? He says, disease cannot separate us. And I think this is so important for what we're dealing with right now in our world, in our community, in our state, in our country. Disease cannot separate us from the love of Christ. The coronavirus cannot separate us from the love of Christ. But not only that, he says... Neither height nor depth. So no physical separation or isolation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Being on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro or down in the Marianas Trench cannot separate us from the love of God. Being self-isolated at home and quarantined and away from other people that we wish we could be with, away from our church family, does not separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If we are in Him, no thing, no one can take us away from.
from that or separate us from that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No physical ailment or condition, no persecution, no government, no spiritual power, no coronavirus. Nothing can separate us. So, quickly to conclude here, I'm not as long-winded as Brother Rick, to conclude here, a couple things. We are to be conformed to the image of the Son. We're to look like Him. We're not supposed to make Him look like us. We've been adopted into God's family. Jesus is the firstborn among many sons. We are to look like the firstborn. We've been adopted into his family and nothing can take us from his family. Jesus says in John that those the fathers give him no man can take from his hand. Nothing separates us from the family of God. Nothing separates us from being God's child. But I want to leave you with a question this week to try to challenge you a little bit. Same question that Brother Rick has been challenging us with through Scripture the last couple of weeks. And he says this. He says this, are we being conformed to his image? Or are we trying to conform Jesus to suit our image of who we think he's supposed to be? That's an important question for us to wonder, an important question for us to ponder, and for us to decide, are we trying to look like Christ every day? Or are we trying to make Christ look like us? So I want us to ponder that question and to think about that and to pray about that, but then I want us to be encouraged more than anything throughout this time. No matter how separated we may be in church, how separated we may be from family, no matter what chaos or distress, as Paul mentions here, that we have going on in our life individually and as a church, none of that is strong enough to take away the love of God that we find in Jesus Christ if we are his children. All right, I'm going to pray, and then I hope you all have a great Wednesday night. Father God, we thank you again so much for your blessings. We thank you that if we are your children, that you tell us that nothing can separate us from you. No physical ailment, no physical separation, no spiritual power, no government, no amount of persecution can separate us from the love that you have given us that is so great that while we were still sinners, while we were still your enemies, that you died to make your enemies your children. We thank you so much that you loved us in such a way that you wanted us to be yours. We pray, Lord, that we would be daily conformed to the image of Christ and not the image of the world and that we would not try to conform you into what we think you're supposed to be, but that we would be changed to be who you truly are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.